0: Well, hey, everybody, welcome to the crossing today. It's always good to have you with us. And uh, I want to take an opportunity to welcome all of those who are joining us as well the Crossing West Henderson, the Crossing St. George, our microsites, all those who are watching online. Can we give them a big welcome right now? Always great to have you part of the Crossing family with us. So we are starting a brand new series today called Signs. And so as I was studying for this message this week, I came across an article of the seven most iconic signs in the world. And so maybe you will recognize some of these right here. Here's the first one. If you're a Harry Potter fan then you will recognize this right here, platform nine and three quarters. Um, Here is number six on these most iconic signs, Penny Lane. Now, Penny Lane, of course, made famous by the Beatles, and it was John and Paul who lived near Penny Lane, had many of their early days and influences right there. Number five is this one right here, Route 66. How many have driven Route 66 Okay, a few of you, I grew up in Kansas, and Route 66 goes through Kansas, driven that a bunch of times. Number four is another one from London, the London Underground. So if you're trying to get around there, that this is an iconic sign. Number three comes from New York City. It is Radio City Music Hall. Anybody been to Radio City Music Hall? A few of you, and maybe you've seen this sign. You might recognize sign number two fabulous Las Vegas sign. You probably have taken your picture out there. And the number one sign according to this article, I I don't know whether that's true or not, but according to this article, the number one most iconic sign is this one right here, the Hollywood sign. (laughs) Originally, this was built for a subdivision called Hollywood Land, And then they took the land off and it's just come to represent the glitz and glamour of people who make too much money. And so that's Hollywood right there. Well, here's the thing about signs. Signs do not exist for the sake of a sign. Signs point to something. Although those signs are famous in and of themselves, the job of a sign is to point to something bigger than a sign. And that's what this series is all about. Over the next seven weeks, we're walking through the seven signs in the Gospel of John. The Apostle John, he arranges his entire gospel around seven miracles that Jesus performed. Now, people are always drawn to miracles. When Jesus fed the 5,000, they showed up the next day because they wanted another free meal. They're just like us. But it was never about the miracle. These miracles were signs that pointed to the identity of Jesus. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 2. I'll also have the scriptures up here. But let me just give you a little bit of background about this gospel right here. The Apostle John, he was one of the 12 disciples. And he and his brother James, they worked in their father's fishing business until Jesus came along and called both of them to follow Jesus. And they became part of these 12 who were always with Jesus. Now, John became part of the inner circle. There was three friends who were always near Jesus. But John became the best friend of Jesus. In fact, when Jesus was on the cross, he looked at John and he said, I want you to take care of my mother. And John did that for the rest of his life, which may explain why John is the only disciple out of the 12 disciples who didn't die for his faith. He is the last one to write his gospel. He writes the the gospel of John somewhere between 85 and 90 A.D., so 55, 60 years after the resurrection. But John not only tells us what happened, he tells us why it happened. And at the end of his gospel, he gives us a purpose statement. Now, if you've ever been in school and you had to give a purpose statement, John is going to give us his purpose statement, and you'll see where the title of this series comes from. Here's what John says. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not recorded in this book. Now, this book right here is not talking about the Bible, This is talking about his gospel. But look at this. It says he performed many other signs. These aren't the only miracles that Jesus performed, but these are signs that pointed to something. And he goes on and he says, but these are written, these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name that these are not written, so that you will know something about Jesus. This is not about information, John is saying. John is gonna share with us his experience so that you might believe, and when you believe, he says, that is where true life comes from. See, here's what John wants you to know. is these supernatural events of Jesus. When he walked on the water, when he healed people, These were not just random acts of kindness. This was not just Jesus showing off. These were signs that pointed to something. And John does not want us to become enamored with the miraculous, but to become enamored with the person that the miraculous pointed to. So today is sign number one, and this is water to wine. This is where Jesus changed the water into wine. And here's how it starts in John chapter 2. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. So I want to kind of get your bearing straight. I want you to understand just some of the geography of what's going on here. And so here's a map right here. You can see the Sea of Galilee right here. Here's Capernaum. This was Jesus' hometown during his ministry years. And Cana is right here. And Cana was three or four miles away from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. So it's it's highly likely that that these are people who were friends or maybe they were part of the extended family of Jesus' family. And so we see here in the next verse, it says, Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. We'll find out later that Mary is part of the hosting committee for this wedding. But Jesus and his disciples were invited, which means John, who gives us this story, was actually there. Now, I want you to notice there is no mention of Jesus' father. The last time that Jesus' father, Joseph, is mentioned is when Jesus is 12 years old and now Jesus is 30. And so he has died sometime in between. Now, but, but funeral, I mean, funerals are a big deal. I, I, actually, weddings are a big deal. We're talking about weddings here today. Weddings are a big deal. Now, if you have ever thrown a wedding, you know how much money they cost, you know how much stress is involved, and it was the same thing in the Bible times. In those days, weddings would go on for days, sometimes up to a week, and they were very expensive for the family. The entire village would take off work and they would come together for this huge celebration. Now, I have done a lot of weddings over the years, and I am always nervous about screwing something up because the bride has dreamed about this day her entire life. The parents have mortgaged their house to pay for this day. They have videographers, so whatever happens is going to be remembered forever. I did a wedding once where I actually called the bride by the wrong name. I felt so bad, and they whisper her right name to me. I just felt so stupid. See, you don't want to be the one responsible for ruining a wedding. But we see something begin to take place here. It says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Now, this is more than just running out of cake or punch at your wedding. This would have been embarrassing beyond belief. The first century, the Middle Eastern first century culture is an honor-based culture. There is this strong sense of family honor and dignity. The reputation of the entire family would be on the line. So when the wine runs out, the host doesn't say, Bummer, we ran out of wine. This would bring great shame on the family. So when Jesus' mother steps in and says, They have no more wine. She doesn't need to explain what's at stake for the family, and she knows that Jesus can do something, which just makes you ask questions, what was it like to grow up with Jesus? If she knows that he can do something, I mean, I don't know what it was like. Did she tell Jesus, you know, Jesus, you need to pick up your room. It's done. There it is, mom. I mean, I I don't know what it was like, but she knew that he could do something. And so Jesus responds like this, woman. Now, this sounds so offensive right here. And I'm just going to suggest that you do not go and try this at home. And don't say, well, I'm just quoting Jesus, woman. You know, don't, don't say that. This sounds so offensive, but it's not. It was actually used as a term of endearment later on, as this term of affection when Jesus is on the cross and he says, woman, talking to his mom, here is your son, and talking to John, son, here is your new mother. That it was this term that was used. This is more of a formal setting because they're in a formal setting. He can't go, mom, I can't do that. This would be like saying, ma'am, And so here's what he said. He's like, ma'am, why do you involve me? Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. Now, when he says, why do you involve me? This is an idiom. And this idiom basically means, what business is that of mine? I have come to save the world, not weddings. This is not how I plan to go public. This is not very messianic. But she can ask Jesus things that no one else can ask him because she's his mom. She can ask stuff that nobody else can get away with. Now, my wife, she teaches a class here at the Crossing called Read It. Read It is this seven-week class that teaches people how to engage in their Bible. And on the last week of the class, I always come in and I do a Q&A with the class. And the first time that I did it, Pastor Lawrence said to Darley, he said, how can I get Shane to come into our other environments to get him to do a Q&A? She said, I think you've got to be married to him. I think that's the only way this is going to happen. Because we've got hundreds of different environments. There is no way that I could be a part of all of them. But I'm always a part of this one because of who asked me? My wife. When your wife asks you something or when your mom asks you something, you tend to do it. So it says this. It says, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I love this. I think she just has a smile on her face. Do whatever he tells you to do and then walks away. I mean, she's the mom. She can do this. It says that nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this is a lot of wine. This would be somewhere between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. This is a big wedding. This is a big celebration with a lot of people there. This reception is going on for days. But these water jars were used for ceremonial washing. Part of the Jewish law, the Jewish custom, is that you would wash before certain activities, that you would wash before you ate, you would wash before you went to worship. And this wasn't washing like we wash before we eat to make sure your hands are clean. This was part of their ceremonial washing. So what they would often do is they would pour the water over their hands and then the water would drip down off of their fingertips. This was part of the law that was handed down from Moses. Now, something significant is happening here that I don't want you to miss. The stone jars represented the old covenant. This was part of the sacrificial system that Moses set up. But what is happening here is Jesus is replacing the old covenant with something new. The old is going to come to an end, and he is going to replace it with a new covenant. You remember a few years later, the night before he's crucified, he will take a cup of wine. He will say, this is my blood. This represents a new covenant, the new covenant in my blood. It says, then Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now, the master of the banquet, he's like the head waiter. He's responsible for what is served. He's responsible for when it's served. He kind of keeps track that everything stays calm. If there's any unruly guests, then he takes care of them. He makes sure that nothing gets out of hand. It says, they did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. So this head waiter, he pulls the groom aside. He's like, hey, hey come over here. You know how this works. When everybody gets too tipsy, that's when you bring out the cheap wine because nobody cares what they're drinking at that point. What they would often do is that, that wine that, that brought out later on, they would water it down. But when people are drunk, they don't care. They don't care if it's all watered down. But here's what's happening. That this is more than a miracle. This is a sign. That something better has come. That Jesus is replacing the old with the new. And as he says, you saved the best until now. Jesus is the best. Jesus has come at this point. And then John summarizes the story like this. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Believed in him. Now, John uses this word right here, believed in him. In fact, John uses this word more in his gospel than all the other three gospels combined. That by the time John writes his gospel, the other gospels have already been out for years. He would have been familiar with them. But he wants everyone to know, the reason that I'm writing this is not so that you will know more about Jesus. This isn't just more information. I'm not just giving you more things about Jesus. I'm writing this so you will believe in Jesus. And he's saying for us 12 disciples, when we saw that sign, we didn't believe something about Jesus. We believed in Jesus. We placed our trust in Jesus. Such a great story. Such a great story for us in this first sign that John gives us. But I have three applications for three groups of people. In this room right now, there are three different groups of people, and I have an application for each group in this room. Here's this first application. Belief is based on evidence. Belief is based on evidence. This right here is for those of you who are not yet followers of Christ. That you have questions, maybe you have some doubts. There are certain things that perhaps have stood in the way of you becoming a follower of Jesus. Maybe you've wondered if Christianity really makes sense. And so you're just starting to come back, you're starting to see, does this make sense for you? Or maybe you're new in your faith. Maybe for you, you are new in your faith, and while you believe, maybe you were just baptized a couple weeks ago, while you believe, you don't know how to explain it to other people. You don't know how to articulate what has happened in you. There is a reason to believe. Christianity is not a just-believe religion. Maybe you grew up with that. Maybe you grew up with the mindset, don't ask questions, you just believe. Or if something was going wrong in your life, if you were having a struggle, people would say, well, you just don't have enough faith. You just don't have enough faith in your life. Listen, we are never asked to have a blind faith. Christianity is based on evidence. John says, I'm going to give you some signs that point to Jesus being the Son of God. I want to show you this verse again, this last verse, because I want to show you the process of belief. Here's what John says. He says what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So let me show you the process of belief. Here it is right here. That these signs they point to the identity of Jesus. These signs point to the identity of Jesus. He revealed his glory and that is what we base our belief in. That when you see these signs in the Bible, they point to who Jesus really is. And then you're ready to put your belief and your trust in him. See, John says, this is how it worked for all of us. This is how it worked for all of us. And then he says, here is my goal for you. Here's the purpose in me writing this gospel. Is but these signs are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We see this. These signs point to his identity. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, so that you can believe and that you can have life in his name, that there is a reason to believe. And here's what John knew. John knew that trust is transferable. If I believe something, If I believe something, you are more apt to believe it. If I tell you the Cardinals just had a couple bad games, they're coming back, they are going to win this National League series, you might go, maybe, maybe not, but you might be more apt to believe because I did. Or if I say, you need to try out this restaurant, man, they have fantastic food, you will go there because I told you to go there. See, this is what John does. We are invited to believe in what happened based on the testimony of people who were actually there. John is saying, I've seen these things. With my own eyes, I placed my trust in Jesus. Now I'm writing these things so that you can trust him as well. Belief is based on evidence. Now here's the second application. And the second application is for those of you who consider yourself followers of Jesus. This is for those of us who are followers of Jesus. It's this right here. It's do whatever Jesus tells you to do. You remember in the story where Mary comes to Jesus and she says, they're out of wine. He's like, what do you want me to do about it? And she just tells the servants, you do whatever he tells you to do. When I did my son's wedding a few years ago, I wrote a wedding message based on this story right here in John chapter 2. I just thought that there is a lot that we can learn about marriage from a wedding that Jesus attended. Then I did the same message at my daughter's wedding this last year when I when I performed her ceremony. And I've used it at, at many of the weddings that I've done since that time. That this right here, this is the key to marriage. You do whatever Jesus tells you to do. You love the way that Jesus would love. You forgive the way that you've been forgiven by Jesus. You serve the way that Jesus served. And if you will do that one thing, if you will do whatever Jesus tells you to do, you will have the most amazing marriage imaginable. And this is the key to following Jesus as well. You do whatever he tells you to do. That when you look at the Bible, almost every time God does something miraculous, it starts with obedience. When you look at the heroes of the Bible, when you look at Moses and Noah and Abraham and Joseph and David, the reason that you even know those names is because of obedience. Because they were put in an impossible circumstances and they trust God and they obeyed and they became part of God's story. And this is the life that Jesus is offering you as well. And maybe for you, maybe you need to take a look at your own life and just ask, am I doing what Jesus has told me to do? See, you can't expect God to bless your life if you are living outside of God's will for your life. Starts with this obedience step. Here's this third application. This third application is for those of you who serve in any way. That you serve in the church, you serve using your gifts for God and here's what I would tell you. Do not grow weary in doing good. Do not grow weary in doing good. Think about the servants in this story of Jesus. Jesus told them to go fill the stone jars full of water. That was hard work. Each water jar each stone jar would have weighed 2 to 300 pounds by the time you you take in the weight of the wine and you take in the weight of the jar and they fill them up and maybe as they're carrying them back maybe they had them on some kind of cart maybe the wine starts sloshing out and they are the first ones who see the water turned into wine they get to see the power of Jesus before anyone else does. They don't perform the miracle, but Jesus uses them to do it. See, here's where some of you are. You serve in an area and it is hard work. Maybe you're on the parking lot crew and people honk at you because they don't want to park where you need them to park. (laughs) Or you serve in children's ministry and you've been on the receiving end of an angry parent. My daughters have been there. On the receiving end of angry parents. You're part of the West Henderson campus. And set up and tear down is exhausting. You're in Celebrate Recovery. And you've watched people go back into destructive addictions and patterns in their life. Serving God is hard work. But you get a front row seat of the life changing power of Jesus. You get to see God change people's lives before anyone else does. See, you aren't the one who changes lives. God does that. But you get to be the one that God uses. You get to be the servant that carries the wine for Jesus. That's what you get to do. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary in doing good. Before this series is over, We're going to walk through all seven of these signs. And my hope is that wherever you are in your faith journey, that it will cause you to take a step in your life. Because only then do you have the life that Jesus is talking about. Life in his name. So I just want to ask, what is your next step? If you're new around here, One of the things that I'm always going to push you at is I'm going to push you to take a next step to grow in your faith. It's not okay to just come here and sit week after week after week after week and not change. That Jesus wants us to become more like him. So maybe for you, your next step is belief. That you were never asked to just believe. You were invited to examine the evidence that points to Jesus. And when you examine the evidence, that is what allows you to place your faith and your trust in Jesus. Maybe that's your step today. Maybe it's time. Maybe for you. Maybe it's an obedience step for you. That you will not see all that God can do in your life until you submit to his will for your life. And maybe Jesus is just saying, come on, it's time. It's time to make some changes. It's time to be obedient. Maybe for some of you feel weary, you're tired. Jesus never said that serving him would be easy but you get to be the conduit that God uses to change lives. So don't grow weary. I want to lead you in a time of prayer. I just want to just lead and guide you. And so here's what I'll ask you to do. I want to ask you just to close your eyes here for a minute. And I want you to pray this simple prayer to God. And whatever it means for you, Just between you and God, just pray this prayer. God, whatever you tell me to do, I will do. Jesus, whatever you tell me to do, I will do. Pray that prayer. God, right now, we come in humble hearts. And God, that's our prayer. That whatever you tell us to do, we will do. We want to be obedient. We want to have surrendered lives to Jesus. God, for those who might be struggling in their faith right now, God, I pray that you would begin to, to help them to see how you work to see that there is a reason to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. God, for those who are followers of Jesus and maybe there's just an area of their life that they know is not submitted to Jesus and they need to submit that, God, give us courage to do that today. God, for those who are weary, that serving you is is not always easy. God, I pray that you would breathe life into them today. We surrender to you. We submit our lives to you. And we pray this in the name of Jesus.